Let us pray. Holy God, there are uh, mysteries in this text from Colossians that I am not worthy to unbox. I don't understand them, so I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would make it plain. Amen. What's behind it all? You ever, you ever hear people ask that explicitly or implicitly? Like, oh yeah, uh, we think that Joe Mankin didn't sign on to the climate bill because he's got problems about the dollar amount, but what's really going on in his mind? You ever hear that? Maybe you're listening to an article on NPR and they uh, have someone who's an evolutionary biologist, sociobiologist, and they say, you know, actually, when people say, I love you, what we've determined in our lab is that that's just an evolutionary way that our culture has developed over millennia to help people who are childbearing uh, stay with one another um, for the sustenance and maintenance of the species, to help the little ones come up. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just an evolutionary response. Or people uh, who say, um, you know, when people say uh, Jesus Christ is Lord, they make any claim of religion, that's not really uh, about a, a spiritual reality. Really, that's class conflict playing itself out in the structures and superstructures of what is really an economic power game. Or other people say, uh, hey, when any time someone says, the numbers and the studies prove X, Y, Z. What they are actually trying to do is pull over the wool over your eyes and exert power over you. Always look for who benefits. What's really going on? In its deepest structure, the gospel of Jesus Christ also says, behind the world that we see... There's something else going on. The book of Colossians says there is a secret that has been hidden for the ages and generations that is being revealed. What you see is not what you get. The direction that history was tending in is not actually where it's going. There is something more powerful, more beautiful, Deeper, truer, more mysterious than you could have ever known. And that when you pull back the curtain of appearances, when for the last time you cross the last river that is death and get to the other side, the Christian gospel says there's not some little man who's pulling the levers. There's not just mere power games. But there is an invisible God who has made himself known, the one by whom and through whom all things consist, the one by whom and through whom there is so much meaning and beauty and order. When you pull it all to the side, what you find is it is good. It is good. It is very good. That's what Christians say. But unfortunately, the message of the gospel um, often falls on dead ears before it can even be heard. If I were to uh, take all of us down to UGA and interview, let's say, 20 college kids, 
there would be no small number of those students, college and graduate students, and maybe just a lot of people in the world who would say, yeah, that's all well and good, but you know what? I don't want to hear anything from you Christians. And if we ask them why, well, there would probably be, I don't know, probably eight or ten uh, types of things that people would say. And number one with the bullet goes something like this. I don't want to hear about what you say is the goodness behind it all. Because all I can see is that everything stinks. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Often you'll hear people who at one time had a very deep and real and abiding faith say, you know what, and then my dad died. And no one from the church called me. God left me alone. Or you hear people say, you tell me there's a good and loving God? Why are there two-year-olds who die of leukemia? Have you ever seen that? Well, I'm a nurse at Scottish Rite, and I can tell you it ain't pretty. Don't tell me about the goodness behind it all. Today, we're going to look at a, a very powerful but strange thing that the Apostle Paul says about the problem of suffering. What it is, why it happens, what it means, what it doesn't. And I want us to explore for a moment what Christianity says, what Paul says about suffering. But I just want to encourage uh, all of you who are believers, and if any of you are here have struggled with those kinds of problems, I just, I just want to remind you those are very, very serious questions intellectually, and almost more importantly, emotionally, when people have those kinds of problems hearing the gospel, it almost always comes from a place that is almost uh, too deep and difficult to name. But in order to help people, and maybe some of you today, in order to, to really move to the place where we can hear the goodness of the gospel, we have to move beyond some of our culture's preconceptions about why suffering happens and who God is in the midst of it. So first, uh, like any good lecturer, let's define our terms here. What do we mean by suffering? Suffering isn't something uh, bad or unfortunate that happens to happen to you. No, suffering is when we are kept from having something that is legitimately good that we've set our heart upon. What counts as suffering for one person might not count for suffering for another person, which is why suffering is often accompanied by that other dark emotion, loneliness. If you lose your dad... There is no one who had a relationship with him like you do. No one can say, I know what you're going through. And by the way, that's the most shallow thing you can say to anyone who, when they're going through a heart. Don't ever say, I know what you don't know. They're lonely in it and you can't fix it for them, which makes it so difficult. Suffering is unique to everyone uh, based on what they think is good. Based on the good thing that they've deprived of that is generally unique to them. Now, as much as we might want to avoid suffering in our lives, as much as uh, we fear suffering and, and suffer from suffering, there's also something odd about suffering in that 
we know that suffering is uh, a big part of what it means to be human. Now, now that's a deep mystery, and I wish I could explain it all to you. Uh, But let me put it to you this way. How many of you who were parents, if you said, uh, Deacon Joe's going to give you this magic wand and you're going to wave it, and uh, those of you who have just had a, a brand new baby or are thinking about having a baby, all you got to do is wave this magic wand, and I guarantee you that the child that will come into the world will never suffer. How many of you would take that? Raise your hand. Really? I'm very surprised by that. There's something about suffering that kind of uh, makes us who we are, isn't there? I mean, wouldn't we be in a world of robots? I mean, there is a tremendous amount of pressure in the bioethics community to do pre-scanning of all children who will ever be born. This is increasingly the case in Northern Europe especially, where we can remove all traces of uh, prenatal diseases. There could never be someone with Down syndrome again in the history of the world if we just did the testing. But those of you who have known someone with Down syndrome would say they were one of the greatest gifts to my life that I've ever known. Why is that the case? There's something about suffering that we want to avoid and that it's very difficult and yet, and yet, you look at your own life and tell me, most of you would say, yeah, I I became the people, the person that I am because I made some mistakes and I learned from those mistakes. I suffered from those mistakes and here I am, a little banged up, a little taped up in some places, but by the grace of God, I am who I am. Now, That said, because even though we say that suffering is not something, the idea of which we want to banish forever, anyone who avoided taking my my wave of the magic wand, if you do have a kid, what do you do when your kid falls out of a tree and skins their knee? They run into the house. And I don't care if you have two PhDs in particle phys- physics, suddenly you are reduced to, uh, you know, the shui. Oh, my goodness, look at this. You all, my, oh, I am so. You, you get down on the child's level, you enter into the language games of a child in order to be with them. So, so let's review. So far, we've said suffering is something that for whatever reason, is, is mysteriously bound up in being human as an idea, but yet each instance of it, the occasion of suffering, is something that's worth lamenting. When it happens, we're sad that it happens, right? So if suffering is an important part of being human, then what's it for? Some people will say, well, <laughs> of course, of course you got to suffer, because uh, how else are you going to Build character. This is what I call the sports builds character argument. Uh, in, in, uh, in Paul's day, this, this type of argument was called Stoicism. The Stoics were ancient uh, sort of wandering philosopher preacher types who would be in the marketplace talking about you know, strong moral values. 
And they, if they live today, Stoics would say things like, uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Stoics are the people who have, uh, you know, those keep calm and carry on posters in their house. The Stoic answer to suffering is, buck up, pull yourself up, endure it. It'll make you tough. And at times, Paul, uh, you know, he knew the Stoic answer. And at times, he talks like a Stoic so much that you think, oh, well, that, that, that must be what it is. It, it, uh, sports does build character. In Romans 5, he says, I rejoice in suffering. Notice how, notice how similar this is to what we heard Don read out of Colossians 1. I rejoice in suffering, he says in Romans 5, because suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And if that is all he had said, he would be a Stoic. But then he continues. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. And wow, we are into that, all of a sudden we're into that Pauline stratosphere. And you realize uh, he's led us down the primrose path just to show us the all-encompassing supremacy of Jesus Christ. That temporally, because the love of God has been poured into our hearts, we can have all of these things, endurance and character and hope, because of what God has done for us, not because we're pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Paul didn't just take stoicism and add a little cherry on top. No, he radically altered it. Stoicism says, I endure in spite of my sufferings. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings. There's a big difference there. Contra Stoicism, Paul is able in the midst of suffering to experience genuine emotion. Now that's key. I mean, let's put to aside for, for the moment that the emotion he experiences is joy, which is even more mysterious. But first, let's just start with the idea that in suffering, Paul is present to his own suffering. I rejoice in my suffering. I'm in it. I'm not avoiding it. I'm not drinking three beers every night just to, you know, shake the dust of work off of me. I'm not, I'm not uh, putting YouTube videos on endless repeat just so I can put my mind somewhere else because I'm so checked out at work. No, he's in it. He's with it. He's down in there with what is actually happening in his life. A stoic person has a hard time being present in suffering. If suffering isn't, is, having, is not having something you desire, then to merely grit your teeth and bear it numbs you, first of all, to your own desire. You know, it's tragic when you see somebody who has a dream, something they really want, and they don't get that thing and it's so difficult from them that the way they deal with the suffering is they distance themselves from having ever wanted it in the first place. Oh, I, I didn't, what are you talking about? I don't want to go to law school. Seriously? No, I'd much rather do this. They become strangers to themselves. And what's more, when this happens, they become strangers to other people. 
Stoic resolve tends to isolate us from each other. Because let's face it, if, if uh, you've gotten through the hard patches in your life by being tough, by being stoical about it, what does that say to other people? Well, uh, you get through it too. I got through it. I toughed it out. Going gets tough, tough get going. Um, does that make you the kind of person that people want to tell their troubles to? So if Paul isn't a Stoic, what gives here? How can he say, I rejoice in suffering? Maybe he just likes being a victim. I mean, he talks about the things that have victimized him time and again. He says, five times I was beaten with a cat of nine tails, 39 lashes. I was shipwrecked three times. Mobs, crowds, I was hungry, cold, naked. I was chased out of more towns than I've been in. Is Paul some kind of adrenaline junkie? Does he, you know, does he get his sense of self from these limited experiences? No, Paul never says, I rejoice that I'm suffering. He's not a masochist. He never says, oh boy, I was tickled pink to be beaten nearly half to death. No, Paul says, I rejoice in it, not for it. Do you, see, do you see the difference in that? Christians never pursue suffering for its own sake. Again, the occasion for suffering in ourselves or in others is always a cause for lament and resistance even. We may not want to prevent the possibility of scraped knees and scraped political institutions. But when we see a scrape on something that we love, we hurt too. We hurt with the people who are hurting. We don't look at somebody who's having a hard time and say, well, praise the Lord, at least you're getting stronger. <laughs> no, what do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, deliver us from evil. Lord, keep us from the time of trial. Lord, keep us from being tested by things that we're not up to. Lord, keep us from that. We don't, we don't want things that are more than we can bear. That's an honest, good prayer. So if Paul's not a macho stoic or a helpless victim, then what is going on when he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. First of all, notice, Paul is unique in that for him, suffering doesn't isolate him, but unites him with others. Man, so, so many forms of suffering are isolating. I mean, even, even something that doesn't have mental or emotional pain, something like um, chronic illness and just physical pain can just make you want to be by yourself, can it? It isolates you. But Paul here is saying, my suffering is not something that isolates me. It's something that unites me with other people. In his case, he's suffering for the church, which he calls the body of Christ. Paul believes that these little churches that he's planted in uh, Thessaloniki and Galatia and Corinth, 
in spite of all their silliness, and if you read those letters, the things that they have come to believe and the things that they are doing just boggle the mind. But he says, in spite of all that you're doing and not doing and not believing, you are the body of Christ. Even when you're not doing what you're supposed to, you are the bodied, the embodiment and mysterious presence of Jesus Christ. Go back to our initial image. Paul is saying, in the midst of you, there is something behind the curtain, and it's Jesus Christ. He's in you and with you and for you. Christ is in you and you are in him. So the things that are suffered for the gospel are for the sake of Christ's body, the church. Why did Paul think that? How did he come to know that? I mean, that's a pretty audacious thing to say, when someone beats me, they're beating Christ. That's audacious, right? But remember, he was told this directly by Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus when he was persecuting the church. And Paul heard a voice that was the voice of Christ himself, and Christ said, why are you persecuting me? You're not just beating up some little Christians. You're persecuting the risen Christ. So Paul's sufferings, and as we'll see in a minute, our sufferings connect us to the body of Christ. Secondly, our suffering doesn't just isolate and unite. I mean, not isolate and unite. Our suffering isn't random and meaningless. In Christ, our suffering is meaningful and necessary. The French philosopher Simone Weil said, the unique genius of Christianity lay in the fact that it doesn't help its followers find a supernatural solution for suffering, but helps them rather to find a supernatural use for their suffering. One more time. The unique genius of Christianity lay in the fact that it doesn't help its followers find a unique solution for their suffering, but rather that it helps them find a unique use for their suffering. For Paul, suffering, that is, useful, suffering is useful in that it makes Christ visible to the world. Because Christ is in him, everything that is true of Christ is true of him. And we can extend to you. Everything that is true of Christ is true of you. You are the body of Christ. In many places, Scripture says that it's only through suffering that we can see who Christ truly is. Remember, there's a point in the middle of the Gospels when things are heating up in like Mark chapter 8, where Jesus says... Uh, are people really seeing who I am? Are they, are they starting to, to peer behind the curtain and see that I'm the Son of God? And Peter says, oh, absolutely. You are the Son of God. And Jesus said, well, okay, hold the show. Don't tell anybody that yet because it's necessary that the Son of Man first suffer before He can enter into His glory. Do you see that mysterious truth? That if you want to see who Jesus really is, you got to see the suffering Jesus and not just the glorious Jesus. If you want Christ to take shape in the midst of this church, 
It can't just be going from glory to glory and success to success. can't be just uh, you happen to say something to somebody and, oh, now they got saved. No, you're going to have to suffer for it. You're going to have to suffer to show Christ present to the world. And this is how Christ chose to do it. When he appeared to his disciples after he was raised, I mean, you would think that uh, once Christ had been raised and like, ta-da, everything's back to normal now. It's great. Christ is raised. That uh, if I were Christ and I were like raised from the dead, I would be going to Herod and be like, who's the boss now? <laughs> Pontius Pilate? You thought Rome was awesome? Check out this glorified body that I've got. <laughs> and did you know that there are actually ancient texts that tried to do that? There's a, a thing called the Gnostic Gospel of Peter. It's one of these early little things that circulated, and, and the, the, the Christians were like, uh, that's not what we teach. That's not how it happened. The Gospel of Peter has like a 900-foot Jesus who appears over the, you know, over the grave. See, this is true. He like comes out from behind the grave and he's like, Blah! and it's the glorified Jesus. And see, that's, that's what so many people think God is. When you pull back the curtain, what you're going to see is God's power and it's going to be over you. What did our Lord do? The disciples pulled the curtains shut. They locked the doors. Shh. They were afraid. And how did Christ make himself known? He came through the walls. He came through the curtains. And he said, peace be with you. My peace I give to you. And they knew that it wasn't just a sentimental uh, snack, a, a big nothing, because he showed them the marks of his hands and the marks in his side and his feet. And Thomas said, unless I see those marks, I will not know that it's the Lord. And when he saw them, he says, this is the Lord. And Christ still, still chooses to make himself known to the world, not only through his glory, but through his suffering. I mean, contemplate this. When Christ ascended into heaven, he carried the marks in his body with him. Such that even now, among the eternal fellowship of the Trinity, there is the presence of a human body that has been marked by human violence and suffering. Christ chose to maintain that marks so we would know how to see him. There's nothing that we endure now for the sake of being Christ's body that Christ does not use to show himself visible to a watching and hurting world. Everything that we do, everything that we suffer for him communicates to the world that the peace he has given us is that same peace that was bought by the blood of His cross. If and when Christ becomes 
your source of significance. And that's what Paul means when he says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. What are you hoping for? What's your glory? What gives you weight and meaning in your life? That's what you're hoping in. If Christ in you is your hope of glory, the one in whom all the meaning of your life consists, and to the extent that you remain steadfast in your trust of Him, you too will be the body and concrete presence of Christ in the world. Now, so far we've been talking about the things that Paul suffered, how he talks about his own suffering in explicit and concrete and often very violent ways as he went to people and into situations that were hostile to the gospel. But what's true for him is also true for us. Uh, Not in that you need to go be the Apostle Paul. There there was only one of him. Thankfully, uh, there's not going to be any more Apostle Pauls in this church. It would wreck the church to have Paul up in here. You don't have to go be a hero like Paul. He was a a one-of-a-kind, once-in-a-lifetime historical figure. But for us, there is another more basic kind of suffering that we experience in our everyday lives. Now again, I'm not talking about quaint little hardships like not being able to find a parking place or Amazon can't get me my, my package for another three days or something like that. We're talking about the hardships that you experience because Christ is the source of your significance. At every stage of your life and your existence, there will be things that you endure because of your faith. And they might not seem like much at the time. But they will be things that communicate to the people around you that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me start with you kids. In about a month, a lot of you kids are going to go back to school. And real, real quick, you're going to realize what the pecking order is in the, in the social world of the school. In other words, who the cool kids are. And let's say there's a group of girls that you want to be in with because they're the cool kids. And you realize that part of the way that they get to the top of the social stack is by belittling other people. And there's one girl in particular that they're mean to. And they're all laughing. And you're this close to getting in with them. All you've got to do is do what they do and go along to get along. But you won't do it. Because you know Christ never lifts us. That's not who you are. You know that. You are who you are because Christ is in you, not because of the approval of other people. And you're going to suffer for it. (laughs) You're going to have to end up sitting with her in the cafeteria. Sorry. But in that moment, Christ will be visible in that school because you're part of his body. Or how about you young adults who experience the loneliness of being single? You have open to you some possibilities for being really present to that pain. And you also have open to you the possibility of uh, showing yourself around at the bar and just numbing it and sort of lots of noise and lights and music. Um, you, you you, You can float that for a while. 
Or you can say, no, boy, I really did want to have someone to share my life with, and that hurts. And I don't know what to do with that, but I want to be in it. I want to feel it because I know there is meaning there. I know I'll be united with Christ's body if I'm present to it. Or let's say, for those of you who have experienced the death of someone that you care about deeply, there's no other other suffering like the suffering of experiencing death. Because death brings a separation that seems final. And there's a loneliness in it. As a Christian, you will be sad. If you weren't sad, that would be weird. And at times, the separation will seem like more than you can bear. And as you go down into the grief, at times it will feel like there is no bottom to it. There's no end of it. But then at some point, you will put your foot on the solid rock And you'll know that while death can take them away for now, the separation is not final. And the power of God in that moment will be made visible through your suffering in a way that it never could any other way. We have this treasure in clay jars so that it will be made clear that this power belongs to God And does not come from us. We are afflicted in every way. But not crushed. Perplexed. But not driven to despair. Persecuted. But not forsaken. Struck down. But not destroyed. Always carrying in our bodies. The death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus. May also be made visible. In our bodies. And you, the invisible God, is revealing himself to a watching world in all of the ways that you suffer for love of him. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 